Good to see everyone this morning. We're going to finish up Luke 22 today. So, so there's quite a, quite a few verses here. Um, just a quick reminder, you know, that kind of the theme verse of Luke is, is up here on the screen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as we, we've talked about, Luke's focus was really on, on that the gospel was for both Jews and Gentiles. So it's it's a very encouraging verse or, or book for for us Gentiles. Uh, let, let me pray for our time, and we'll uh, jump into this passage. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy of everything we need. Uh, most of all, we we thank you for providing the redemption that we needed, Jesus Christ. Father, as we study this passage, I pray that the truth of your word would would just prevail in our conversation. May it, may it glorify you. And uh, Father, I pray that we would really be transformed now. In uh, Christ's name we pray, amen. So uh, this begins with, uh, in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. How does Jesus address Simon Peter? Russ, you probably never had to do this with any of your girls, I'm sure. Call them by their first name more than once. Yep. It, it happens, doesn't it? It gets attention. It gets attention. Um, I'm sure, totally, you never had to do that with Tom. Tom! Tom! Uh, when you say it the second time, it's like, okay, I, I think there's, you know. And so I think that's what he's doing. It's getting his attention. Um, it's interesting, in verse 31, the, the Greek word for you is plural. So when he says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, he's talking about the whole group of disciples. So not just Peter, although Peter was kind of a spokesman for the disciples. But So that's why he would address him. But then in verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's singular. So the prayer is more, and and you see that at the end of verse 32, he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's focused on Peter and the role that Peter's going to have later on in the church. Because Peter's going to have a very formative leadership role in the church. So can Satan demand something that he wants from God? What do other parts of Scripture tell us? What happened in Job? Did Satan demand something and God have to give in to him? No. See, so from Job, Satan asked permission from God to test Job. So this demand is, is more of a forceful request. 
than it is. He can't demand something from God. God is omnipotent. He's sovereign. Satan is not. He does not have the ability to demand something from God. What? Why does one sift wheat? Think in biblical terms. What would they, in, in Bible times, why would they be sifting wheat? You've got to purify it, right? Yeah. The chaff. So you've got to purify the wheat. So that's why you're, you're sifting it. Um, you're, you're removing the impurities. God allowed Satan to test the faith of the disciples. He, he's focusing on Peter to purify their faith. He knew they needed their faith to be strengthened. Now, God allows difficulties in our lives. It, it reveals our weaknesses, but then it also builds our trust in Him, builds our faith in Him. So how, how would you summarize Jesus' prayer for Peter? It says that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, what does it mean to turn again? That's repent, right? To turn is to repent. So he he didn't want his faith to fail. He wanted him to be effective, an effective early church leader. I guess we're going to have a potluck today. Yeah. Um, And then to turn again is to repent. It's interesting. This is a complete rabbit trail, but I'm been texting back and forth with Monica about the potluck or picnic today and what are we going to do if it rains and and it's like oh the forecast says rain at like 12 if that happens and we get set up outside and it rains and it's like it's like Lord really make it clear well I think he has (laughs) he's made it clear we're going to have an indoor picnic today but moving back to Luke So Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. There's quite a contrast here between, I mean, Peter boldly proclaims he's willing to die with Jesus and Ultimately, he will, but not yet. And then Jesus predicts that Peter's going to deny him three times that same day. You know, those who are most vocal in denying a weakness are often the first ones to fail. Uh, Jan and I attended a church at one point early in our marriage and there was um, there was an elder in that church that was adamantly opposed to them he just didn't feel like there were any biblical grounds for divorce that it was and that that's often the case with someone who denies that they have any kind of a weakness in an area in that area because they're relying upon their own strength and not the lord and that's what we're seeing Peter. Peter's relying on his, his ability too much. And he said to them, 
when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So what's different about the charge now versus his previous charge when he sent them out? He alluded to it here in the first verse. Um, Luke, Luke 9, 3 was the earlier passage. He, he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So he basically had sent them out with nothing in his prior, on their, their prior ministry journey, and now he's instructing them to take money, provisions, even a sword. So the big difference is Jesus was with them he was personally there on their first, the first time they went out. But this second journey, he's no longer going to be there with them. And what was the crucifixion of Christ going to do for, for his followers? It's going to paint a little target on them. They are going to be subject to persecution following the crucifixion. So he's telling them, okay, you need to be more prepared than you were before. So was he advocating violence? He told them to have a sword. I think he's recognizing the dangers that they were going to face. Travelers at that time often got robbed when they were out because they're, they're walking, they're very vulnerable to attack. And so he's telling them to have swords to give them ability to, to resist violence. But, and I, I think when he said, it is enough, he's telling them, stop the talk about swords. You know, you got to, that's good, just leave it, leave it. Don't talk about it anymore. This is, I think is really confirmed when he's arrested because he tells them, you know, drop the swords and then he'll, you know. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So why is it significant that he's heading to the Mount of Olives? What does it mean when it says, as was his custom? It's a habit, right? It's a normal place for them to go to. So he's, I think an important point here is he's not going somewhere to hide. He's going to a normal place that he would go to, Judas, right? So... This is a common practice. He's heading to this garden on the Mount of Olives. Judas would know where to find Jesus. 
Now, uh, Sharon's recently been there. She probably went to some of these places. But So the Mount of Olives is just east. I'll look your way. It's just east of Jerusalem. And the upper room was probably in the southwest area of Jerusalem. But it's, so it's a, a, you know, a mile or so. It's not, it's not a huge distance, but they're not adjacent to each other. There, it's a little bit of a walk, a little journey. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He knew the danger that they were going to face. So why does he tell them to, to pray to resist temptation? They were going to face a lot worse things. He's really focused on their spiritual. He had just told them that Satan sought to sift them. So the temptation was was coming. He knew. I mean, he could have told them to leave the garden. This is not going to be a safe situation. But no, he didn't do that. This shows us God often guides us through difficult situations rather than having us avoid them or immediately leave them. Now, difficult situations are when your faith grows. It's kind of like an athlete. They, their conditioning improves when, when they work hard, when they, they push their body to the limit. Well, if our spiritual life is, is real laid back and everything, we don't grow spiritually. We grow spiritually when we face difficulties. So he allowed them to face this difficulty. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's revealed by this prayer? He acknowledges that he's going to face a very difficult situation. He's going to have to endure severe physical pain. The the pain of flogging or or scourging and, and crucifixion, I don't think it can be overstated. Many people didn't even survive the scourging. And then the the pain of suffering I don't think we really can describe he knew what he was gonna gonna face but he's committed to following God's plan now he could have he could have avoided the cross he could have called down a legion of angels to defend him to where he wasn't even arrested But that would have been disobeying his father. And he was committed to following his father's plan. He says that. Not my will, but yours be done. To follow whatever the plan was. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So, so what are the details about this prayer time? You know, it's an agonizing time for Jesus. He needed angelic assistance. Sweat being like great drops of blood. Uh, commentators are kind of mixed on this. Some believe it really was blood that came through his pores, and that's possible. Or it could have been just that he was sweating so profusely that it's dripping off like blood. Uh, either way, the point is that this was an agonizing time. And He's sweating not because it's cold. I mean, because it's hot. It's actually cold. Because later on, we're going to see Peter warming himself by a fire. Well, you don't warm yourself by a fire if it's, if it's hot. So he's sweating profusely because of the situation, not because of the temperature. How did he find his disciples? They're snoozing. He instructs them again to pray to resist temptation. Uh, from Matthew's account, we know that he prayed for like three hours. And he found the disciples sleeping three different times. And from Mark, we know that he physically fell while walking through the garden. He was in so much agony. What does it mean to sleep for sorrow? So... The other translations actually have um, exhausted from grief. And that maybe helps you understand it a little better. Um, they had been told, okay, Jesus is going to be betrayed. They're all going to abandon Jesus. Peter's going to deny him. I, their world is falling apart. They followed this this man, Jesus, for three years, and now all of a sudden, we're all going to fall away? Peter's going to deny it? What, what? This is not going the way we expected. In fact, they had just talked about, well, what's my role going to be in the kingdom? And now they're all going to abandon him? Like, come on, this is not going the way we wanted. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why would he betray him with a kiss? Couldn't he just point at him? Oh, he. Yeah, this was a customary greeting at that time. I think Judas may have been hedging his bet that okay, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And, you know, maybe I want to continue to be one of these disciples. You know, when the dust settles after Jesus is arrested, and, you know, I can go back to being what I was. Whatever his motive, this greeting was not genuine. We know that. He, he like all the disciples, he didn't comprehend what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus was 
both going to die and, and be raised from the dead. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So you can just see the chaos here. Um, These disciples had been instructed to have swords, right? So, well, he told us to have a sword. Let's, Let's get with it. One of them asked if they should resist, and before they, Jesus could even reply, well, we know it was Peter. John identified him as Peter, had cut off Malchus's ear, and Jesus had to intervene to heal it. Before this happened, what had Jesus done? He said, I am, I am he, when they asked, Who's Jesus of Nazareth? And they all fell to the ground. So he had shown that he could could stop them if he wanted to. And allowed himself to be arrested. I think he intervened to prevent the disciples. If he hadn't done, if he hadn't stepped in, these soldiers would have taken out these fishermen. I mean, it's just, there's no, it's not a fight. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is power and the power of darkness. So who all's in this arresting party? Oh, you've got you've got these Jewish he questions them why did you come out armed you could have you could have arrested me in the temple quite easily why did you come out here with soldiers he just shows the absurdity of of his arrest what's the power of darkness darkness conceals things right I like to run in the mornings, and this morning I had to run early, so it was dark still, and and so I carry a light with me to try and see what's what's in front of me. My dog sees things a lot, so I kind of like having him with me. But the power of darkness—they're desiring secrecy in his arrest. They don't want the crowds to know what's going on because he's had support and they want to avoid that support. I think it also shows their association with evil. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter at a distance. So what do they do when they arrest him? He's going to start the trials, right? From John's gospel, we know this, he was first taken to the house of Annas, who's the former high priest. He was questioned there. Then they took him to Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, and the current high priest. Luke's focus is on Peter more, of what's going on with Peter. Um, as, 
as Jesus is being led away, Peter's kind of following, but at a distance. He's, he doesn't want to get too close. He doesn't want to get to associate directly with Jesus. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And, but Peter said, Man, I, do, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So let's, let's list these events here. So it starts out Peter's warming himself in the courtyard just outside of, of where Jesus is being tried. One of those followers. And what does he do? Well, then another accuses him of being a follower. And he again denies. An hour later, he's again accused of following Jesus. He denies him a third time. And then he hears the rooster. Jesus looked intently at Peter. Then Peter left and wept bitterly. Just to weep is, is, weep is, is intense crying already. So to weep bitterly really shows the motivation behind his intense crying. He was bitter about what he had done. I think this shows intense remorse, repentance on him, sadness for what he has done. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So what's the treatment like during these trials? Pretty abusive, right? Um, he's physically beaten. He's emotionally and psychologically mocked. They blindfold him. Um, then challenge him spiritually with blasphemy. So here's a list of the trials. There's six different trials. The first three are religious. And then the, the second three, I've called them civil. You could call them almost political if you wanted. But the, the first three we'll talk about today. The, the next three will, will roll into next week. But, so Annas was the first one, and that is described in John 18. 
Annas had no direct authority. He's a former high priest. But he's kind of like the, the godfather of their time. He's, he has a lot of authority, though it's not direct authority. It's, during that trial, first of all, it's held at night. There are no witnesses, and he's abused during the trial. Those are things that violate their law, we'll, and we'll talk more about those later. Caiaphas is the real high priest. Um, that's described in three of the Gospels. Here he's accused of blasphemy because he claims to be the Messiah. Uh, there are false witnesses, and again, he's abused. So, and then finally, the Sanhedrin is, which we'll see here, there are no witnesses. It's not a proper vote. And then they turn him over to the Romans for execution. Under the Romans, he faced Pilate, and then Pilate sent him to Herod, and then he came back to Pilate. And we'll, we'll talk more about those things next week. So the objectives for these trials, they were trying to develop a case against Jesus that the Romans would accept. They needed a charge that the Romans would accept to execute him because they weren't allowed to execute. But they also were trying to, if they could get him to recant Messiah, that he was the son of God, another guy, we don't need to do anything to him. At that point, he would have lost his, because they, they really didn't, you know, if, if, they, if he's killed, they risk him being a martyr to where people are then going to follow him. Numerous Jewish rules were violated during these trials. Um, trials were supposed to be during the daytime, and they're supposed to be public, not held in secret. Uh, specific charges were to be presented. They, they're going to keep fishing for things until they can find something that sticks on Jesus. Self-incrimination is not allowed. So simply because he admits that he's the son of God, that, that shouldn't have been enough to incriminate him. They're supposed to have two or more witnesses. If any of the witnesses are false, then that, they throw all the testimony out. They're supposed to begin with the presentation of defense. They weren't supposed to start on Friday. Because a capital trial has to extend beyond one day to give time for the truth. And they weren't supposed to have a trial extend into the Sabbath. Physical abuse of the accused is, is prohibited. That's, that's not supposed to happen. So... When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you... So this is the trial before the Sanhedrin. They want him to agree that he, he's the Messiah, which they would consider 
instead of condemning himself, he condemned If I tell you, you will not believe. Well, that's a huge issue. If they don't believe that he's the Messiah, they're condemned eternally. Failure to believe Jesus has eternal consequences. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his. So the statement that they want to use against him is that he's agreed that he's the son of God. It's a claim of deity. This is a charge they're, they're basically going to bring to Pilate. Seeking the death penalty for Jesus. So what are some principles we've seen out of this passage? We need to be on guard against temptation. Jesus continually, repeatedly told these disciples they were going to be tempted. We all face temptation. We need to be on guard against it. Every one of us are going to fail at some point in our service for God. How we respond to that failure to turn from that and, and return to, to the right service. Mankind, you're going to be betrayed at some point by someone in your life. Um, it, it happened to me, I can remember one time in a business meeting, and someone denied that they had instructed me to do something, which I didn't want to get in an argument with him. You, you may get betrayed. Faithful. He will do everything. So how are you on guard against temptation? What are things we can do to guard against temptation? First of all is to recognize our weaknesses. If I have a weakness for those on, avoid those things. Do you respond to your failures with humility? Apply when you're betrayed. When life is difficult, how easily, when our situations are, are hard and we will face hard situations, our first response should be prayer and knows how to get us through. Any questions or comments? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for despite everything that he was going to face, and focused on complete persecution beyond what we can even. Father, help us to have faith in him that, that guides us through difficulties. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.